0: So by way of reminder, as we get into this next chapter, it's sort of a new section, but it builds on the arrogance and the pride of the congregation in Corinth. Now remember, there's divisions that have occurred in their church. And these divisions have gotten somewhat contentious and argumentative. It's not just that they had different opinions. These opinions were leading them into factions. And the factions were arguing with one another. And so there was no unity in the church. They were saying different things. Remember, the Greek and this time the Roman culture was filled with philosophies of life. Here's what life is all about. Here's what makes a person happy. Here's what leads to fulfillment and purpose. And they had reduced the gospel of Jesus Christ to just another Greek philosophy. So they had maybe two that were prominent were hedonism. How many of you know the word hedonism? Yeah, we're familiar with that word. We understand hedonistic life are those that pursue pleasure as the highest goal of mankind. You live for pleasure. If you've ever said the words, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? You have combined hedonism with the gospel and you've misspoken. Now, Epicureanism is related to hedonism in that there's the idea of pursuing pleasure, but they also had the idea of avoiding pain. So that's where the idea of everything in moderation comes from. See, if I eat, but if I overeat and I feel sick to my stomach and that feels painful, then that's bad. Does that make sense? So you have Epicureanism and that embraces pleasure, but not so much that it causes pain and avoids pain. And you have hedonism that totally embraces pleasure. And into that culture, Paul brings the wisdom of the cross. The cross would be absolutely ludicrous, the hedonist and the epicurean because it is not pleasurable it is painful and they would look at that and say that is crazy to say that a cross could possibly be part of the plan of god because they were filtering the gospel through their understanding of hedonism epicureanism and their basic philosophy of life now i bring that up today and i'm going to combine that with another little fact about corinth the background of the city this is sin city you remember we talked about that it's got this the sinfulness because it was a port city because they made quick money, this had become a very sinful place. The city of Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans more than 100 years before Paul ever went to Corinth. So the city was then rebuilt, and it was rebuilt about 100 years before Paul got there. So the city of Corinth is rebuilt. It's a Roman city now. It's only 100 years old, and it's like the gold rush. People are rushing to make their fortune in Corinth because of the shipping industry, its location. So what you have in Corinth is the new money Of Silicon Valley. And you guys know what new money can produce. When you come into a lot of money very quickly, it brings this sense of arrogance and superiority. You see it in Hollywood. You see it in the sports world when people go from the hood into making it big in basketball or baseball, come into quick money. There's drugs, there's women, there's fast cars, there's a fast lifestyle. That's what new money does. New money is often accompanied with irresponsibility and a sense of arrogant superiority and immaturity. And that's what you have happening in Corinth. So when we talk about chapter five and we come to this issue of sexual immorality, now some might say, wait a second, pastor, we're gonna talk about sexual issues in terms of some bring their children into the service. So I'm going to be, from that standpoint, I'm going to be sensitive. But I will say there is a place and a purpose for children's ministry. Because if you're the one that says, well, we shouldn't be talking about sexual issues in church, I would say get a grip. Because the world is not afraid to tell you everything about what it thinks sexuality is all about. The media will present a picture to our children and to us that is completely distorted, and it's all over the news. We can't turn on the news without hearing about sexual harassment these days. But God is the one that ordained sexuality. And I think he ought to be able to say something to his children about the topic, don't you? I think one of the challenges is in church is we become so Puritan and Puritanical in our ways that we're afraid even to mention the word. So we are going to talk over the next few weeks sensitively, delicately about sexual matters. But this first section, I want to remind you, chapter 5, the overall topic, the overall issue in chapter 5 is very simple. And it's summed up right at the end in verse 13 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. That's what he's saying in chapter 5. It's not dealing with the sexual immorality itself. So I'm not going to deal with that today and go, I brought a guest today. But instead, what he's going to deal with is the church's response to sin in its midst. That's the issue that Paul is dealing with, with the Corinthians. So with that as the backdrop, Paul begins chapter five by saying it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So someone has been spilling the beans to the Apostle Paul. Remember, this letter is what some would call an occasional letter. There was an occasion for him to write. It's not just merely doctrinal like Romans. Romans, Paul was outlining the doctrine of the grace of God. But Corinthians is a letter to deal with certain issues that had cropped up. The house of Chloe in chapter 1 had told Paul, those of the house of Chloe had told Paul that, hey, Paul, the church in Corinth, this young missionary church that Paul had planted on his missionary journey was coming apart at the seams. There were arguments and there's strife, and God is not being glorified there, and Paul hears about it. I mean, that's hard to hear about it. Paul's not there. He can't deal with it directly, so he has to write a letter to try to talk to them. So evidently, it's also been reported to him, among other things, that there was some sexual immorality issues there in the church in Corinth. Now, this is not a new thing for Paul to address in his letters. These are people coming into the church that have lived in paganism. They have lived in Roman culture. We take it for granted. Our views on sexuality and marriage are very unique in the world. And they're unique because we are a nation founded on Christian ethics and morals. Our nation is so great, because it stems from moral reasoning. When we reason, when we make decisions, at least in the past and in our history, it's been from morality that guides our decisions. But when the Greeks and the Romans made decisions, it stemmed from pleasure or looking into what I want or how I feel or what I need. That's where reasoning came again. Doesn't God want me to be happy? That's a way of reasoning. That's where you start from. Therefore you go, well, this makes me happy. God wants me to be happy, therefore I'm going to do this. That's how we make decisions. But as Christians, we make decisions based on moral reality laid out by God. So we say, is it morally right or wrong? And we would say, if it's morally wrong, if it's prohibited by God, then I should avoid that thing. But in Greco-Roman culture, by the way, the word sexual immorality is the word in Greek, pornea, where we get our word pornography, but it's more than that. It's a word that has a wide application to all extramarital sex, from adultery to homosexuality to prostitution. So it's an all-encompassing word. Sexual immorality in the Roman culture was rampant, and, and so much so that marriage had nothing to do with love. Marriage in Roman culture had only to do with the production of legitimate children you could pass your inheritance onto. That's why they got married. Matter of fact, It was so common and so understood that a man named Demosthenes said in an offhand comment, listen to this, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Just a couple miles down the road from Corinth, there was a temple to the god Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. This was the urgent care of the ancient world. And you would go to the temple of Asclepius having made some sort of little model of the part of your body that you wanted healed. And you would take that as an offering to the God to know that this is the part that I want healed. And so there's feet and legs and arms and all that stuff. And they have today, I'm hoping when we go to, to Greece in March, that we'll get to visit the museum there in Corinth, where behind locked doors, they still have the votives, the offerings that were made to Asclepius. Over 50% of them, can you guess what they are? male and female sexual body parts. Because those were the things they wanted healed because in that kind of culture, you had rampant disease and infection based on their sexual escapades. So I'm painting the backdrop for you. And against that backdrop, we have the final authoritative word of God in Genesis. So whenever we come to questions on our behalf about sexuality, God said it, Genesis 2.24, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and those two shall become one flesh. Everything you need to know about God's plan for human sexuality is right there in Genesis. So we'll come back to that in future subjects again. Now, having given that overall intro, I'm going to move quickly into the specific problem, because again, Paul's issue isn't to deal with whether or not they knew it was sexual immorality or not, whether or not they knew what was going on was wrong. They knew it was wrong. It was so wrong that even the culture that they were in, even the twisted, distorted Roman culture knew it was wrong. He says that in such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So this is a guy that they know, a guy who's in their fellowship and he's shacking up with his stepmom. They're living together. They're involved sexually together. And this is not a hidden thing. It's not a secret thing. Everybody knows it. And this guy is a guy that they know. He's a guy that's been hanging out in their church. He's been there in fellowship with them. He has friends in their community. When you talk to him, he says, I love her. How can that be wrong? We don't know where the father is. We don't know where the stepmom is. Paul doesn't address either of them. All his attention is given to the man this man who's involved in this. So it's quite likely that he's the only Christian in the bunch. Dad, we don't even know where he is. It's possible that this relationship between son and stepmom have caused the divorce between stepmom and dad. These are those places where you go, the basic purpose of the passage is clear, but some of the details as we go through, we just don't have the information. So we're not going to speculate. We're just going to leave it stand as it is. But what we know is that there's an issue going on. It's blatant and it's flagrant. And Paul says in verse two, and you are puffed up. He's carried that word from the previous section talking about their pride. Remember six times in the book of 1 Corinthians out of the seven times in the New Testament, six times this word puffed up is used here in 1 Corinthians. So they're arrogant about it. They're proud about it. And instead he says, you would rather not mourned that he was has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So he's really not addressing the man and his sin. He's addressing the church and how they're dealing or failing to deal with the issue. You see, the issue is not knowing that this was sin. If the problem was, well, they didn't realize it, it was ignorance, then Paul would have spent the next section explaining to them what sin was. But we'll find out that Paul had already written them a letter. This is actually not First Corinthians. There was a previous letter that we don't have. That would have been 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is probably 3 Corinthians. There's been a lot of correspondence between Paul and this troubled church. This is Paul's problem child. And they are just causing him. I don't know if Paul had hair or not, but if he had any, he was losing it because of this church. I'm going to assume that as he gives this instruction, and this is what happens when the church becomes worldly. Even our responses to sin become opposite. We call good evil and evil good. And our response to sin should be brokenheartedness because sin hurts people. Sin hurts the individual involved. It hurts the individuals around them. And it hurts the church, does damage to the church. And Paul's going to elaborate on that. So I'm going to assume that there were some steps taken before Paul says this. I'm going to assume that already Paul or others had addressed maybe in a previous letter of this guy and said, hey, you need to cut this off. You need to knock it off with your stepmom. That's just wrong. Doesn't glorify God. It's ridiculous. You need to get away from this. Forsake it, repent. And I'm assuming that he refused. Or it just could be that the church would say, oh, you know, well, God is gracious. He forgives. And they would blatantly adopt and approve of whatever. Hey, we're not under the law, Paul. Don't judge us. Could have been any one of those things. But what we find out from Paul here is that he's saying, you know what? The church has a responsibility to deal with sin in its midst. The church is not a playground for sinners, but a hospital for sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy or those that think they're healthy. I came so that sinners could be led to repentance. Now, that hasn't changed even today. That's Jesus that said that. So, the problem comes in the church when sinners don't repent and continue to live out whatever is popular and accepted in the culture gets lived out in the church. Then, what are we inviting people to? Then, why do people need God? If we're just going to be just like the world, then, you know, we might as well pack it in. I got better things to do. Really. But I believe that God wants to create us a healthy and a holy family. Now, holy doesn't mean holier than thou, holy means different, separate that people are going to need a place to come when they get tired of the rat race, when they get tired of being beat up and trashed by the things of the world. They want a refuge to come to where people know what's right and wrong and are willing to say, hey, this is what we want. God, we want a God who's holy. We want to deal with the sinful parts of our life, not harbor those things. So he said that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. This is maybe the idea of excommunication. I don't like that word. Paul will deal with this further as we go on. So let me continue reading. Verse three says, for I indeed, Paul speaking from a distance says, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. So Paul says, look, I've already formulated an opinion, made a decision. That's what judgment is. We would say, you have heard it. Hey, who were you to judge? Don't judge me. Paul's already talked about, you can't even judge me. Chapter four, he says, I don't even judge myself. It doesn't mean anything that I should be judged by you. Remember, in that section, Paul was talking about his Christian service. That's different than his unchristian sin. We are to call sin, sin. It's ridiculous to say that somehow we aren't allowed to have opinions about behavior in life. That's ridiculous. Anybody have children? You've judged them. You've told them that's wrong. That's judgment. And we don't bat an eye at it. But somehow when we come to church, there's this concept that we can't call sin, sin, that everything goes in church. And it doesn't. And I'm glad it doesn't. Now, hang with me. Some of you are squirming in your seat. This is really a great chapter. And unfortunately, it's a chapter you will not hear preached in most churches. And is there a chance that maybe that's why the church is in such bad shape? Maybe that's why the church lacks so much power because we're full of so much compromise. So Paul says, it's as if I'm there with you. I'm absent, but present in spirit. I've already judged. So Paul's exercising his authority, him who has done this deed. And so here's what he tells him. Here's my judgment. Here's what I'm telling you to do. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's a mouthful, Paul. So he lays out the parameters and he gives like four things here we're familiar with in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew 18 in the context of conflict resolution He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. When the church gathers together and says, we're gonna do business on behalf of God and we're gonna follow God's authority as a church, Jesus says, I'm right there with you, I'm with you. Whatever you say, I'm down with it. It's as if I'm speaking through the church, those that are gathered together, not in their own name, not with their own standards, not with their own ideas, but gathered together in my name for his glory and with his character. So there's a the gathering together of the church along with my spirit. Paul would say, I'm there too. So this whole group now is gathering together and the power of Jesus Christ is there. So it's not just a certain group of people in the church making a decision. Jesus is there. Paul is there authoritatively and the churches gathered together. And when they gathered together, verse five, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You gotta give this guy over. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, what we know is that Paul calls Satan the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. John in 1 John says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked So it seems as if what Paul is saying is this person who's not interested in repenting, who's not interested in getting free of this relationship, you got to give him over, deliver him up, cast him out to Satan, back into Satan's world, the world where he wants to be and let Satan have his way with him. Look at the purpose, he says, and I'll come back to the Satan part. He says, the purpose of this is that his spirit may be saved. The purpose of this is not so we can be self-righteous, The purpose of this is not so that we can shame this guy or destroy his life or hurt him personally. The purpose is that he might have this destruction of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Can I be honest with you for a minute? I have no idea. Nor does anybody know exactly what Paul had in mind when it comes to the destruction of the flesh. Did he mean his fleshly desires, his pursuits of pleasure? Because those will destroy you. Did he mean that God was going to somehow judge him like he did Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 would take his life? I have no idea. Pick one. But here's what I know the Bible tells us that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. Now, that passage used to really bother me when I first read it because I watch Animal Planet like you guys do. And I watch lions prowl. And they do it pretty quietly, don't they? Am I watching the same show you watch? I mean, they prowl, and then when they seem to have the advantage, I mean, they go for it with everything because that's the meal for the week, and they try to get the weak, and they try to get the old, they try to separate them from the rest of the herd, and they don't growl. I mean, maybe once they're done, they growl. But in the Middle East, at the time Peter was writing that in 1 Peter, shepherds would put their sheep into a sheepfold. You've heard that word. At night, because you can't watch all the sheep that are out in the field, they're easy prey for wolves and coyotes and lions. There were lions in the Middle East in those ancient times. So the shepherd would gather the sheep into the fold and he would place himself at the only way in, the door, to defend his sheep. Lions would prowl around and they would roar and growl and snarl to cause the sheep to begin to freak out and get anxious. And the hope was of the lion, if I can say such things, the hope of the lion was that an anxious and scared sheep, scared by the roaring of the lion, would jump out of the fold and then be easy prey for the lion. The roar was meant to scare them out of the flock to make them easy prey. The challenge of this passage is twofold. Number one, that people take the fellowship of the body of Christ so lightly that there should be and there is an advantage to gathering together with the people of God. I know people, when you get separated from the church, you got more world coming into your life than you have word coming into your life, you begin to devolve quickly. You begin to decline. I've been saved for 23 years or so, and I've been actively participating in the life of the church for that entire time. People that thrive in their walk with God actively participate and regularly participate and love to participate in the gathering of the body of Christ. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, small group, mission trips, whatever it is, there's a huge blessing. This is where the Lord is. We are his body. And one of the troubling trends is to see that many people, their Christian experience now is maybe once a month gathering with the flock. If that, maybe every other month, get there when I can. You see, in that culture, if you were a Christian, you didn't fit in anywhere else. If you weren't accepted in church, you didn't fit anywhere else. You were ostracized and destroyed other places because you were a Christian. The other challenge of this passage is that we live in a day where if a church tries to do the right thing, exercise church discipline, you might say, people just get upset, angry, and go to the church down the road. It doesn't work anymore, even if churches attempt to do it. And look, let me just remind you that loving discipline is part of a healthy family. I don't care how big we are. What I care about is how healthy we stay. And you know that as a family. We know that as a church. Now, what this doesn't mean, we've seen church discipline done horribly wrong, haven't we? We've seen self-righteous pastors, come against people sin-sniffing and pointing out things with no compassion whatsoever. I don't think that's what is being talked about here. But there are issues. That's why I say I'm assuming there were some steps before this. I'm assuming that what we do, and like we do, that they had approached this man and said, hey, we're coming with the humility. We're coming with gentleness and saying, you know, you put it on Facebook. You know, you're living in sin. We want to run to homosexuality or those things. But just living together outside of marriage, sexually involved outside of marriage, engaged in pornography. Look, I got better things to do with my time than chase down everybody's sin, everybody's private sin. Now, if you put it on Facebook, it's open season. And once we know about it, we sort of have to say, what's going on? You know, we come in here and we take communion and we say, hey, Jesus is Lord. Is Jesus your Lord or is he not? And then oftentimes, after the initial anger of being confronted, the pride that we have as human beings is atrocious. If someone comes to you and tells you, hey, you're living in sin, immediately the wall goes up and the pride goes up and how dare you tell me that and how dare you approach me about that? Look, I'm not coming condemning, I'm coming to say, let's have a conversation about this. And if there's repentance, even if the person says, I'm stuck in this thing and I can't get free from it right now, but I know it's sin, then we're with you and we wanna encourage you. And getting away from that, we're not going to kick you out. We don't want to do. This is never fun. We want to walk with you and encourage you and see you be strengthened and pray with you. The problem comes when there's no recognition that it's sin, when there's actually a rebelliousness about it. What do you do with a rebellious child that's ruining the home and affecting the other children? When church discipline is done right, it's beautiful. And it's done right when people value this because we are family. I remember a situation I had to go through and had to confront somebody, you know, as an adulterous situation happens more often than I'd like to admit. But when a wife calls says, hey, I found out my husband's having an affair. What do you want us to do? Just go, well, you know, you know, whatever. God is gracious. Does that cut it? I got to go have a conversation with the guy. Hey, what's going on? And when I say, hey, look, you know, you've got to either choose Jesus or sin. Like you can't have your cake and eat it too. When the person cannot imagine living because all of their relationships are here because this is their family, when they cannot imagine life apart from the church, they'll forsake their sin for the value of the relationships they have here. The problem is today, these relationships, they're meaningless to most people. So yeah, I'll find a group of people just like you down the road and I can go live in my sin there. And that, as a pastor is what's heartbreaking, because I take these relationships very seriously. I love you, and I hope that you love me. And when these issues come up, it should break our hearts to think about not being able to gather together as friends and family in Christ. So deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, in order that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. He says, look, your glorying is no good. This is not good. Leaven is yeast. You know that. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he's reasoning with them now. He's giving them the reason why the answer is to cast this person out, to cast them out of the body. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now yeast is like sin in a lot of ways. Yeast operates by eating sugar, making carbon dioxide and alcohol. It's the process of fermentation. And biblically, it's a picture of sin because yeast creates a toxic environment. Alcohol is toxic in quantities to almost every other bacteria. So yeast dominates by basically killing off everything by releasing a toxic substance that kills off everything around it. That's one way it's like sin. Number two, it's a decaying process, corrupting process. Number three, yeast multiply by creating more of themselves. They don't reproduce sexually, but asexually. They just clone themselves. So yeast multiplies by multiplying itself. That's how sin works. Sin multiplies itself. One person is empowered. Another person goes, hey, if they're doing it, I can do it. And then pretty much it becomes the way that it infects the whole thing. That's the last part. It puffs up. That was their problem. Sin is what makes bread rise. Excuse me. Well, sin doesn't make bread rise. Please don't try that. You won't find that in any recipe at home. Just add a little sin. You'll have a perfect loaf every time. (laughs) It's been a long weekend for me. Sin puffs up, produces arrogance. Is arrogant. That's why when we approach someone about sin, the deceptiveness of sin, the arrogance of sin, the flesh hates to be confronted. Sin hates to be confronted and it will do everything to deny being sold out, being exposed. So the first response when sin is approached is the wall goes up. How dare you approach me? I don't want to be approached. Does not want to open up to that. And that creates pride and ultimately leaven, it infiltrates the whole thing. The way they did it is you had a little leavened part of the dough. You had your starter. How many of you make bread? You have your starter And then you add that to the rest of the dough. And what was in that little bit, eventually it infiltrates the whole loaf. So the whole thing gets leavened. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Don't you know, listen, if we wink at or close our eyes to just a little bit of sin, it eventually takes over the whole thing. He says, therefore, the only thing you can do is purge out that old leaven that you may be a new love since you are truly unleavened. I don't know if you can even really do that in real life, I don't think you can even purge out leaven. I mean, try to unleaven your bread. You can't really do it, but illustrations fall short. Maybe some of you have dealt with cancer. Maybe some of you have cancer currently. What if you went to a doctor's appointment, they discovered something on a scan, and, you know, I think you need to see an oncologist. You go to the oncologist, and they say, we found some cancer cells in your breast. But you know what? I don't think we should do anything about it. Let me just let it grow. What do you think? What would you say? Let's wait 10 or 20 years. Come back in 20 years. We'll see what's there. Would you be down for that? You would say, I want it out and I want it now. I'm not willing to go through radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, anything because my life and my health are at stake. Do you see what Paul's saying about the body? Now, again, I want to just remind you that what we're not saying is that we go around sin-sniffing, looking into all of the things you do and looking into your life These are dealing with flagrant and blatant sins when they arise and when they become known. Then we have a responsibility for the sake of the person involved and for the sake of the church to deal with these things. I remember hearing a story about a Brazilian model years ago. She had gotten an infection and her body was becoming septic and they amputated her hands and her feet to try to save her life. But ultimately, she died from the infection. It was too late. Many churches are dead. And you and I know as well that one of the issues that has divided the church in our days is the issue of of homosexuality. It has caused factions and divisions, denominations have been ripped apart by these issues. And we'll deal with that in the next section. But it says, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened, indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So he goes back to the Passover where they would have to go through the house the first day of the feast. Get all the leaven out of the house. He says, Christ is our Passover lamb. The reality is we are unleavened. Our sin has been forgiven. Our sin has been dealt with because of Christ. He's telling them, just be who you are. Christ didn't die so you could embrace sin, but so you could be set free from it. He says, therefore, let us keep the feast of unleavened bread, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, of sincerity and truth. Nothing hidden, nothing infiltrating, honesty. There's so much power in confession. If you confess your sins to one another, you can be healed. And so that's all Paul is saying. Instead of blatantly living these things, let's be honest about them. He says, I wrote to you, verse 9, in my epistle, not to keep company with the sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So he says, look, I wrote to you before. That's the previous letter I mentioned. And I mentioned not to keep company with the sexually immoral. And you guys misunderstood what I was saying. They thought Paul met with sexually immoral people in the world. But once they become a Christian, they're part of the family, then anything goes. And remember, they were living as if they were living in the end times. I mean, as if God had brought the kingdom now and they could do anything they wanted. Now was the time of celebration the body. Hey, the body is made by God, and the bodies were made to be sexual beings. Therefore, we should embrace sexuality of all sorts of pleasure to the glory of God. So Paul has to correct them. He says, look, I wasn't talking about the sexually immoral people of the world, because if that was the case, we'd have to leave the world, right? Sometimes as the church, you know, there was this whole monastic period where Christians thought that they needed to go live in a monastery somewhere and set themselves apart from sin. Paul knows nothing of that lifestyle. We're called to be salt and light in an immoral world. But you know what the world sees? The world sees exactly what Paul saw. The world sees the church that points the finger and says, you guys are wicked. The world looks at the church and says, why don't you take care of your own? Why don't you police your own? And we tend to want to get into certain sins and treat them differently than others. We'll talk all day about homosexuality, but let's not talk about adultery. Let's not talk about living together outside of marriage. So Paul says, look, we're not called to a monastic lifestyle. I wasn't talking about the immoral people in the world. What were you talking about, Paul? He said, but now I'm writing to him clarifying not to keep company with anyone named a brother who was sexually immoral. And he doesn't stop there. He's a covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or an extortioner. This is not to get mixed up intimately with someone who is living as a hypocrite. In other words, they're saying they're a brother, but then they're living in known sin. You now look, people come into the church out of paganism. I came to God out of an immoral life. Anybody else with me? There were things I should have known, but I didn't. The culture never told me. The movie industry never told me what was right and wrong. They glorified all that was wrong. So I didn't know. We're not talking about matters of ignorance. The church is a place to be educated, understand what's right and wrong. My mind was twisted. Your mind was twisted. Kids' minds get twisted. And so the church is a place to come and learn and grow and understand what's right and wrong and what God says. And you look at it and go, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? But when someone becomes a Christian and Jesus becomes Lord, then it's hypocritical to say that you're one thing and then to live knowingly, willingly, and ongoingly in another lifestyle John said it in First John, if you say you walk in the light and yet you're in darkness, you lie and you do not practice the truth. And we call it hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy ends the minute you say, I got sin in my life. The minute you say, I'm struggling with this thing. But the minute you say, I'm gonna call it a lifestyle, not sin, I'm gonna call it what I want, I'm gonna embrace it, even if God clearly says not to, then you cross the line into rebelliousness not even to eat with such a person. So this person wouldn't be allowed to the agape meal. What about personally? What can I have lunch with them? I mean, these are people that we know and love. That's what makes it so hard. When a person wants to have their cake and eat it too, so to speak, they want to still have this intimate relationship with you, but they want to live in their sin. The best thing you can do is say, look, why don't you just get right with God? Because I don't want to get dragged into your drama myself. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Those who are outside, God judges. What do you expect? You watch the news, you ah, oh, I can't believe the world we live in. What do you expect? They don't know God. Do you expect the world to know the difference between right and wrong, moral and immoral? Say no. They don't know. How would they know? Nobody tells them. So God will ju- take care of that. Our job is not to judge the world. That's God's job. But what is our job? Those who are outside, God judges, our job is to take care of what's on the inside. He says, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. What a great way to end a sermon today, huh? Deuteronomy 17, 7. I don't know how you process what we just went through, but I pray that you'll continue to pray for me and have grace for me as I present, just try to do the best to present what God's word says. Remember it was the occasional letters, a specific situation, we'll deal more generally, but I hope what you see is that my hope for us is to maintain a healthy family full of grace and full of compassion, full of understanding, full of patience. Isn't that what you want for your family? Who cares how many kids you have if they're all running amok? Isn't it a glorious thing to be part of a healthy family? And a healthy family is not a family that never has conflict. That would just be a strange family. That would be a family in denial. A healthy family is a family that experiences conflict, experiences sin, and then deals with it according to the grace and the wisdom of God. And that's all Paul is trying to say to the rebellious and arrogant church in Corinth and maybe to the rebellious and arrogant church in America.